Most of us have at one time or another read through the creation accounts in the first couple chapters of Genesis, I'm assuming. And if you've read the creation accounts, it's in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You'll see that from the very beginning of God's vision for his creatures was to cultivate land and culture and to flourish together in community while enjoying the blessing of God's personal presence. It was a vision of creator, creation, and creatures thriving together in community. So from the beginning of the biblical narrative, creation and community go hand in hand. It's no coincidence that the word for humanity, Adam, is linguistically connected to the word for the earth or ground, Adama. But when our ancestor who was given this original commission to steward the created world falls into disobedience, his sin has grave consequences for the creation itself. After Adam partakes in the forbidden fruit, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. He tells Adam that his cultivating work is going to be toilsome and laborious. But God doesn't give up on everything. He begins the project of salvation when he calls Abraham a wandering nomad and tells him he's going to make a great nation of him, a nation that will eventually bless all the nations of the world. God is going to give Abram's people a land to flourish in where they can enjoy each other, the creation in God's presence. Again, Creator, creation, and creatures doing life in harmony. The call of Abraham and the promise made to him, the promise of a blessed land, tells us this. God refuses to give up on his original plan that went haywire in the Garden of Eden. This is the promise reiterated to Jacob that we read about this morning. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. In our reading, uh, Jacob is traveling and he's tired, so he lays down for a nap on a rock. Sounds comfortable. Have you ever had a dream so good? Have you ever had a dream so good that when you woke up, you were actually kind of disappointed that you were awake? Maybe you were uh, the Queen of England or you were uh, a hobbit living in the Shire or your uh, lottery ticket was called on the evening news. Well, imagine having a dream in which God promises you that you're going to have an abundant land and that your family will begin to populate that land from north to south, from east to west. Jacob woke up happy. This was just about the best dream you could possibly have if you were living in the ancient Near East of the time. Because land was the way that you provided for your family and friends. Having land meant having protection and housing and economic opportunity. So the promise of land was probably the best blessing one could receive from God. Now, Jacob, of course, goes on to father 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a tongue twister. And they begin to populate the land indeed, and it seems blessed. But what happens is a famine. A famine comes, and there's a lack of resources. And so the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, has to go and live in Egyptian territory. And they end up there for over 400 years, and it eventually becomes a very oppressive situation. They are enslaved by a wicked king. Uh, Their lives are toilsome, and this wicked king is trying to kill male children so that the Israelites cannot over power him and leave now what is needed is intervention and exodus chapter 2 tells us that the israelites groaned and cried out 
And God heard their cry, and it says God remembered the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what does God do? God raises up Moses to lead the people out from Egypt. And in a powerful intervention, Yahweh parts the Red Sea, and the people are freed from their bondage to Egypt, and their enemies are engulfed in the sea. And they begin to conquer a new land. And it would seem that the promise of an abundant land was again being fulfilled. And it starts to look like God's desire for creator, creation, and creatures to live together in harmony is taking shape. But things don't go so well. The people begin to groan and complain against God. And they begin to worship false gods to satisfy their cravings. There's greed, there's adultery, there's murder, and the list goes on. And there's a continuous pattern of rebellion in their story that leads to a severing of the relationship between God, his people, and their earthly dwelling place. And it particularly results in the loss of land. And so because of the human heart's persistent desire to be its own God, the land is either corrupted or lost because of sin. And the Israelites are eventually conquered again and exiled into the land of Babylon. Now you have to understand how severe of a punishment this was for a people living in the ancient world. One Old Testament scholar says this, life without the land was scarcely life as God's people at all. In fact, it might as well be death. And in the years of this exile in Babylon, when the people are continuing to live in a state of rebellion, the prophet Isaiah cries out, the earth lies polluted under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. And again, we see the intrinsic relationship between God and humanity and the land. When God's creatures refuse to choose his way of flourishing and instead try to create their own, the creation itself suffers. And the Old Testament actually draws to a close with a people who still don't have a promised land. So will the promise of a blessed, abundant land where God's people flourish together in community with the blessing of his presence ever be fulfilled? Or will the wickedness of humanity be an eternal impediment to the vision of creator, creation, and creatures thriving in the blessedness of glory? Paul thinks the promise will be fulfilled. In fact, he thinks its fulfillment has already begun. We've been working through Romans for about six weeks now, and for you who have been here the whole time, God bless you, uh, working through this, this somewhat difficult discourse, but we've been trying to catch Paul's grand vision of salvation and what it means for disciples of Jesus. And last week we looked at Paul's, uh, what we call the big picture view of life in the spirit, which was that disciples of Jesus are restored image bearers and life in the spirit enables us to faithfully represent God to the world. And I told you last week that Paul's view actually expands even more as we work deeper into Romans chapter 8, and that is where we find ourselves today. And I hope that after next week, when we've completely worked through the chapter, that we will all have a panoramic view of God's saving purposes, past, present, and future. Today, Paul writes this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself 
will be set free from its bondage to decay. The creation was subjected to futility, he says. Paul is thinking here of Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. So we see right away that Paul has the Old Testament in mind when he talks about a created order that has been given over to the consequences of human sin. Paul knows that the land is still suffering, disease and decay and death still run rampant in creation. He goes on and he says that creation has been groaning in labor pains. Interesting imagery. This is image of a woman who is so ready for that baby to come out. It's an image of eager expectation, of longing for new life. But the term groaning is interesting here. It's an interesting choice of words. Where have we heard that term groaning? Just moments ago, we heard from Exodus chapter 2 that the children of Israel were groaning out to God. What were they groaning for? For release from their bondage to captivity. See, Paul is drawing on the situation in Egypt, which is why he says what he does next. Not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Here's what Paul is showing us. Both creation and creatures are awaiting God's ultimate redemption. Both are in need of salvation. Now, all of this is quite a predicament. If both the world and its inhabitants are in bondage to sin, decay, and death, how will the promised land ever become a reality? How will Jacob's dream come true? How will the creator indwell the creation and live among his creatures in peace and abundance? It seems that what is needed is this. A human who could faithfully keep God's covenant and live a life of perfect love and obedience. But not only that, this human creature would need to be able to make other creatures worthy to be in the presence of Almighty God. And not only that, this human creature would need to have creative control over the entire cosmos in such a way that its complete redemption lies in his hands. I want to read something uh, to you from another letter of Paul. Uh, written to the church in Colossae, his letter to the Colossians. And as we wrestle with this need, let us hear what Paul says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. You see, Paul knows the problem and he knows the solution. He knows the one who is the solution. Because Jesus is the only way that creator, creatures, and creation can dwell together in a state of reconciliation. 
in a state of peace. Only Jesus can bring his people to the promised land. The New Testament speaks of the promised land in terms of new creation or new heavens and a new earth. John is given a vision in Revelation chapter 21 of the future, and he says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. Creator, creation, creatures, together in an eternal city a promised land. But this is an earthly vision. This is an earthly vision because Paul believed that these bodies and this earth would be restored at Jesus' return. And if that is not a big picture view of God's saving purposes, I don't know what is. So what does it mean? What does it mean for us? What do we do about this? I want to get cheesy here and go with uh, the letter P, and I want to suggest three different things uh, that we can do as disciples of Jesus to grasp the reality, the big picture view of salvation. And they're this, proclamation, prudence, and participation. Here we go. Proclamation. Share Jesus. It's your mission. It's our mission to let people know that there's a God who loves them and that there's a way to know that God. There's no need to be a Bible expert or have tons of missionary experience to do this. It's quite a simple and straightforward message. Two, prudence. Since God is restoring all things, including the created order, we should use prudence, which is thoughtful decision-making. We should ask, how do my choices affect the planet and its inhabitants? Does this luxury that I'm enjoying cause someone else discomfort or suffering? It's important to think about those things. Three, participation. Participate in your community. Get involved in your community. Make it better. God always works his purposes out in community. Have you noticed? God actually is a community of persons. And it doesn't just have to be church or, quote, Christian community. Remember, Israel was a community that was meant to draw people into the true God by its way of being in the world. So it is for the church. The biblical vision uh, of the redeemed world is one of continuity. It is one where the cultural goods that bring glory to God will have a place in the new earth. Author Andy Crouch writes this, Our eternal life in God's recreated world will be the fulfillment of what God originally asked us to do, cultivating and creating in full and lasting relationship with our Creator. Friends, if our vision of salvation is God's vision of salvation, a salvation that encompasses the entire cosmos, we will tell people about the Savior, but we will also invite them to see the work of the Savior among us, renewing all things. And with Jacob, who saw heaven and earth's overlap, we too will say, surely the Lord is in this place. Amen.